I was asked to speak to a local school about Ash Wednesday. There was sort of a local prep school. Tell us about death, Dave. (laughs) I thought that they were asking me to speak to the middle school. And so I uh, prepped something short, you know, it's going to be a morning assembly type thing. And then at 1030 the night before, when I was looking to sort of see where I should park, I realized I was being asked to speak to the lower school, which is kindergarten through fifth grade. (laughs) And they specifically wanted me to talk about Ash Wednesday and what goes on. And so it also happened to be Dr. Zeus's birthday and the beginning of like National Reading Week. So everyone was dressed up in their favorite costumes. So like the... the uh, librarian was Amelia Bedelia and there's like, everyone is like Hermione and, 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 and I, I got up there and I just told all these kids they were going to die. Like that was what I did. I didn't say yeah. it's quite like that. I was like, well, kids, it's a happy day here. It's kind of a sad day over at my church and oh it's because God. no one uh, really gets to live forever. Uh, at least we, we'll get <laughs> Nobody to, gets out of here alive. We go to be with God and, um, all of us are going to die, and that's it's, it's true of you, and it's true of me, and that's why we put ashes on our forehead. And uh, How I did just, that go over? Well, you know what? The truth is, and I'm sure Sarah would back me up on this, uh, the adults all looked uneasy. The kids looked totally interested and yeah. like, yes. laughing, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're all going to... All of our movies, all of our favorite movies are about everyone dying, like Disney movies. <laughs> yeah. The adults are like, and what is he back doing? To life. I was like, I, but I, but I, what I said is, I, I mean, I realized in that moment, there's just no child-friendly version of Ash Wednesday. It's just, it's about death. Well, and like, you know, I know when we lost mom and dad, I remember Neil's um, fourth grade teacher, who was just the best, saying, it's crazy how many kids have lost grandparents this year because of COVID. So it's not like none of them have experienced death. Yeah, they, you know what I mean? They need to talk. They need to hear it acknowledged just yeah, like all of us People do. don't acknowledge it religious or not at all. So, like, I mean, that's that's the funny thing is we always think the kids are the ones that are going to struggle with it. It's the adults. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, the kids woke, got up and like, hey, let's go to school. Let's go to class now. And the adults were like, what just happened? Was is that okay? I was like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. That's what you had. I tried to do it in a sweet, winsome way, but, yeah. and I, 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 I probably might not have said yes if I'd realized I was speaking to like seven-year-olds. But um. Did I tell you about Marshall asking about death? Did I talk about no. the podcast uh-uh. already? We were driving to school one day and he says, Daddy, am I going to die Oh, someday? You know, am I going to die? And I said, yeah, you are. And he started to get a little teary and he said, I don't want to die. And I said, yeah, buddy, I know. Um, but I said, it's, uh, it's going to be a long time from now. And, uh, you know, when you die, uh, me and mommy and your brothers and Jesus are all going to be there waiting for you. And we're all going to live together forever. And so now he's really interested in what heaven is like. As my older children were, uh, Jackson decided when he was young that heaven was a place where you get to drive a motorcycle, uh, a rocket motorcycle with an unlimited supply of coke. And I was like, yes, that is heaven. That's exactly that's, that's your conception of heaven. Coca-Cola, to be clear to the listeners. <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> yes, Coca-Cola. Good save. Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence, 
playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Well, first we have to just surface the fact that the time at RJ's church in Palm, West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, was really just a dream. I want to say Aww. thank you to you and to all of our listeners. I mean, we, we saw we met a bunch of mocking cast people. There's there's a professor from Cornell, Vince. If you're listening, it was so nice to meet you. Who dropped by and brought us maple syrup, and then and I want to say to Vince's wife, who is home with their three children under the age of five. Thank you for letting Vince come yeah, to West more importantly. Palm Beach while you were stuck. <laughs> you were stuck in Ithaca in the dead of winter. Oh my God! But God then just you. person after person at RJ's church Aww. who have who appreciate not only uh, this human that I I appreciate, but also that hearing uh, being kind of set free and really impassioned by the gospel in a way that just you could just see it in people's eyes they're they're thrilled to be at church like so excited and so all this stuff that rj's been saying about these bible studies he likes to lead and and that um <laughs> turns it, out i might not have been lying he's not lying he's not <laughs> lying and i want to say uh i thank you for having me rj it was so thank Sarah, you coming you were, it was so fun. everyone's so like we gotta have him back next year Got him back next year. Well, are you going to be promoting a book next year, Dave? I'm wondering. Do you have anything coming out? <laughs> this week, no. the cover art for Low Anthropology was revealed. It was a huge deal. Just it's reverberations around the world. It went viral. It went viral. It, <laughs> it did. Was... It went viral in our hearts. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> That's thank right. you. Well, I, I just want RJ... Um, I'm just so so grateful that you are where you are and and to see uh you know so your ministry just thriving like that just, I had I I told Sarah and I was sending her pictures the whole time and she was like he you're going to make me cry uh but it was it was really special it's really something else so I wanted to acknowledge that in front of our listeners yeah it was it was just wonderful yeah and I hope this same. I mean, I, I, I just, I'm very excited. Uh, you know, we're going to be in New York in about six weeks. So Sarah and I will oh be. Oh my gosh! Wow. First time Sarah's really spoken in this in this kind of way for since. Wow. Since we lost mom and dad, yeah. yeah. And um, they, lots of people are signing up for that. It should be a wonderful time. That we we don't actually have all the capacity in the world. So if people want to come, they should, uh, you know, make sure to sign up sooner rather than later just because of there's still some lingering restrictions sarah i did see that you went to go see Marin morris play yes can you tell us about that at the houston rodeo as my father would pronounce it um <laughs> yes yeah, so we I, it's a weird thing. So my mom really liked pop country women, especially. Um, and after they died, uh, my daughter and I started listening to Maren Morris, which if you don't know Maren Morris, you probably know she sings a song called meet me in the middle. That's more pop than country, but she has an incredible songbook. Um, she's an amazing writer. And, I kind of told myself like a year ago, I was like, if we, like I had even looked at her concert schedule, like if there's a way for us to see Maren Morris, then I want to go. And then like she showed up at the rodeo and friends, sweet friends who, um, 
it's weird in Houston, like people, there's like 36,000 people that volunteer for the rodeo. What? And if you're one of those people, you get a lot of tickets. And so, um, they gave us tickets and we got to see her and it was like a religious experience. I mean, truly like she sings a song called my church where, uh, she talks about basically her church is like road trips with like country music playing. Um, she's like a great line, like about Johnny Cash leading the church choir. It's so good. And, um, Johnny Cash and Kanye. And Kanye. Yeah. <laughs> Kanye is not anywhere near her church. Um, <laughs> you, you took pictures though of your of your kids like with this these looks of joy. Oh, because like, they never been to a concert. Like they didn't understand like that lighting was gonna change, and you know it was like oh. stuff like that. They they were just like oh it it was just like so sweet. Um, yeah. So it was it was so a really I don't know. Highlight. I feel like we're at this point where the kids are finally old enough that we can like take them to stuff like that and. It's so fun, mm. you know? So, wow. Yeah. I was so happy for you. It's Thank just, you. It was a soul lift for sure. Rucker, any, 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 what do you have to say for yourself other than the lovely community that somehow it, is developing? I, honestly, it's just been an overwhelming two weeks. Uh, yeah. This past Sunday, you know, everything's been backed up for two years. And so we finally, we welcomed like 80 new members to our church on Sunday. We gave First Communion to 10 kids. We had like 400 people in worship. That's so um, amazing. Had an amazing Lent. I talked about Spider-Man 2 last night. A bunch of people came out for that. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, things, are, things are good. Let's jump into these articles. The first one is about forgetfulness. I, someone sent this to me yesterday. I thought it was very interesting. In the New York Times, Scott Small, who's an Alzheimer's researcher, wrote uh, a, a column said, we will forget much of the pandemic. That's a good thing. Mm. He said, it is inevitable that over time, many of our memories of these difficult years will fade. As a neuroscientist who studies memory and memory disorders like Alzheimer's, I find this fact perhaps counterintuitively comforting. I've come to understand through new research that there is a danger in remembering too much and that forgetting is not only normal, but in fact necessary for our mental health. It used to be thought that forgetting anything was caused to varying degrees by a failure of the brain's memory mechanisms. But new developments over the past decade refute this simple idea. Neurons contain what are sometimes called nanomachines that are dedicated to construction of new memories. But scientists have recently discovered that neurons are also endowed with a completely different set of nanomachines designed for the opposite purpose, to carefully disassemble and thus forget components of our stored memories. Normal functioning, memory, and forgetting work in unison. Of course, there are unhealthy kinds of forgetting. Alzheimer's disease, for one, targets memory mechanisms and causes them to fail. But in other disorders, it appears that the brain's forgetting mechanisms break down. The psychological condition that perhaps best exemplifies what can happen when people don't forget properly is PTSD. Ah. While it is often beneficial to remember the facts of a traumatic experience, sometimes in pointillist detail, it is equally important to the healing process to let the emotional valence of it fade. If we don't, mm. we can get stuck in total emotional recall, reviving our distress in perpetuity. Forgetting protects us from this debilitating anxiety, not by deleting memories, but by quieting their emotional scream. The same is true for more run-of-the-mill emotions. Intuitively, it makes sense that we sometimes need to, quote, let go of hurt and resentment to preserve close friendships, and that we need to forget in order to forgive. Of course, we won't and shouldn't forget the pandemic. In addition to memorializing the loss of our loved ones, we should commemorate the selfless commitment of our fellow healthcare workers and rewrite our government and medical manuals so that we are able to respond better and faster next time. 
But for many of us, some degree of emotional forgetting will be a natural part of living in and moving forward from the pandemic. Forgetting some of the fear with which we've lived will allow us to more clearly recall the details we want to remember. Oh, I find this incredibly reassuring. Hmm. Tell me more. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm thinking about my mom's brother visited um, uh, with his wife a few weeks ago. And we were just kind of talking like, what's the stuff that I have, you know, that, that belong to the family. And, um, and he was really, he was really surprised. I had, I still, I mean, I've, I still have the gun. My grandfather used to kill himself and he got very concerned. He said, you know, there's a note, you know, that he left and it's got his blood on it. And, you know, I know your mama found it and I know it's in something and, you know, super, I mean, fatherly concerned in a way that I'm so lucky to have in my life. And he's like, and I want you to throw that away. And I I think, you know, because I come from people who, who had memory was so important, right? Um, because they'd had so much loss. Um, you know, that's a constant question for me. And early on, it was like an overwhelming, I was drowning question about what what memories are mine? What memories are theirs? What physical things embody those? What do I have to hold on to? How does that get passed down to kids? Mm -hmm. Um, and I've been able to let a lot of that go. And that was like such a freedom thing for him to say to me, like, Oh my gosh. And it also is a weird, like memory is a weird thing for me where memory in my family, there's a high ethic of like is also honoring. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like, that's a, that's big. And so if we are to forget our, is that in some way like dishonoring? Mm. Um, and I've had to kind of let go of some of that virtue just for mm. the sake of sanity. And it's so reassuring to hear this Dave, seriously, like <laughs> I feel so much better because it's like, Oh, me softening the memories around things and maybe only choosing to remember some things enough to tell them to the children and to tell them even to myself is like actually my brain's survival mechanism. Yeah. And yeah. it's not me like trespassing. I don't know. You know, no, it's, like it's that's not, it's not super necessarily you suppressing. Yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Healing. I mean, we do talk about God remembering our sins no more and there's a memory yeah. aspect to it, oh, it, it that, that's, that's involved with, for, you know that's in forgiveness is is there is an it's like forgive and forget well how can you forgive if you don't forget or how can you forget if you don't forgive it's it's i wonder if the, there's just not as enormous of a distinction between those two things as we would mm. like to think um i was i always find this i mean I remember tully and chivijan always said i that um you know the sins that you can't forget God cannot remember or something like that. Um, and I thought that that's a, a comforting word, um, especially when we do forget sometimes things that we wish we'd remembered and we remember things we wish we didn't. But uh, RJ, what do you, what do you think about it? Uh, it reminded me of a podcast I heard a while ago. I can't remember if it was This American Life or Radio Lab or what it was, but it was talking to someone who there are people who remember everything. Like there's a certain condition where you say to them, tell me about January 12th, 1994. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they'll be like, this is what the weather was like. This was the song playing on the radio. This is what I was wearing. You know, like crazy mm -hmm. detail. And that seems like a superpower. 
But this podcast was talking about how actually it's an incredible burden because those people, as we all have, have lost people they loved. Mm. And they and and they will it's like being there. It's like they can never forget the pain and the grief of losing losing someone they love because they remember everything. Mm. That's yeah. and, and it's so immediate that it's like the emotion is just still right there and they wish that they could um, sort of forget how that how that felt and move on with their life. So that was um, really affecting. Um, it also made me think of you know people that I've known in my ministry who lost a spouse, um, and they'll talk about their spouse in almost hallowed terms about just how amazing and wonderful and kind of perfect their husband or their wife was, and sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's really not true. (laughs) Sometimes their spouse actually wasn't a very nice person. And I think sometimes I'm tempted to feel a little sorry for them or feel like that's sort of denial or something. But then I'm like, no, that's that's really beautiful because the the truth of our relationship with, with people is that it's always a mixed bag, right? It's always some good and some bad. But how we remember the memories we hold on to around a, a certain person probably has more to do with how we feel about that person than what actually happened right so if we really loved someone we're going to remember the good things mm. you know but if we were really hurt by them then we're probably only going to remember the bad things mm. you know and, and maybe it's um you know that you're starting to get some healing in a relationship you have with someone in your past when you can start to remember more of the good things and less of the bad things um, and the final thought I had was, I think it's C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. By the way, I think that we... applies to church too. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I think when you re- when you start to, when you sometimes when I hear people talk about their painful church experiences, they leave out because uh, especially since it, the ones that I was present for, they leave out the smiles on their faces, and, all the good stuff, and they, That's they right. remember acutely the pain. Um, yes. But, and this doesn't mean it's one's not less real but yeah but but i still want to say it's real probably there was some pain that they suffered that was so deep that they couldn't see the good stuff yeah and we know we all have people like that in our life right who have really wounded us and so you know we can't like we can't we don't remember that our dad actually did coach our soccer team when we were five years old all we remember is the hurtful things he said to us when we were 13 yeah you know you, you see pictures again and you're like oh i Maybe my dad did love me. Yeah, you know, um, even though I'm not, I didn't feel like he did. Yeah, um, and, and so I think we all we all do that, and I have great sympathy for that. Um, but C.S. Lewis, I think it's in the Great Divorce, says that when we, and this is who knows if this is true, but it's a beautiful idea. When we get to heaven, not only will our present be changed and our future be changed, but our past will be changed as well. And it, you know, I've used this image before. It'll be like a needlepoint where we could only see the bottom of the needle point where it was just a mess of tangled threads and we confusing and we had no idea and suddenly be flipped over and we can see the, the beautiful picture that God has woven and made of all the various loose ends of our life and our past will be redeemed as well, you know? Uh, and and that's, um, that's a beautiful picture. And I, I find that, I hope that's true, huh. right? That we'll look back and the pain of our life will be washed away and we'll only have good memories of our earthly life. Imagine that, um, or we'll see how God, you know, uh, was faithful through it, through it all. So it's, I don't know, a very interesting thing to mull in my, in my personal life. I, yeah, I mean, I, I keep thinking about, and I'm, I'm doing this 
talk. We should put up a link to it, I guess, or these series of talks for uh, Tablet Magazine. Um, the Tent. The Tent, uh, which is like this interfaith group of clergy, and we're all doing talks, and it's really interesting. But I'm actually doing one um, with a rabbi about uh, sort of mourning and grief practices. And one of my points is like, we just actually don't have any in our like waspy world at all. Uh, our, our grief no, we practices. Drink. Yeah, we drink. Uh, RJ, yes. That's exactly <laughs> We it's like, just drink. You shop Truly. with vodka. That's our, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the extent of it. Um, and how there are so many uh, just beautiful grief practices in Judaism. But one thing I think of is like, you know, when, when, when you refer to someone who's died in Judaism, you say, may their memory be a blessing. Ooh. And I think that's, um, that's, gosh, I mean, that's so, it's just so good. Like may their memory be a blessing, you know, the, the other thing, I mean, I'm always giving like grief book shout outs, but, um, but I do get, people will write to me emails and be like, I got that book and it's great. I'm reading the grieving brain right now. And I, I, I can't recommend it enough. So, um, the grieving brain, the grieving brain. So if any of this is resonating with you, <laughs> the grieving brain is new and it's really wonderful. So, wow. Well, um, gosh, well let's, I'm going to, we're going to shift gears and talk about, uh, RJ, you said, uh, you know, uh, being able to remember everything, it can be a superpower. Uh, let's talk about that you don't want that you don't want <laughs> yeah, that you don't want that is hell. <laughs> yes, let's talk about hell. a lack of superpowers. That's an interesting thing. Mm. I went and saw hell. the new Batman movie last night. No spoilers, please. No spoilers. Now who's I, Batman I, now? I uh, Robert Pattinson from the Twilight movies. Oh my god! Oh my, I didn't really? even know that. It's definitely okay. an emo Batman. It's 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 uh, as someone described it, wonderfully grim. I mean, it's a grim three hours, but it is more than more than the Christopher Nolan. That is a ones. young woman's Batman. I have to say, it's an almost forty-year-old. That is a young woman's it's Batman. It's a young man. Yeah. Well, um, it's excellent. Or I thought. I, okay. I just want to say, Good. I think it was great. And one of the reasons it's so great is what was what was written about it. Uh, that uh, Blake Nail wrote for Mockingbird about it, and seeing mm. the larger themes, he wrote about uh, something called the Batman satisfied vengeance and a symbol of hope. And bear with me. Uh, uh, think about this Superman an S on the chest and a flapping red cape doesn't strike fear in those below the flying superhero a teenage boy swinging in between New York taxis and skyscrapers aka Spider-Man isn't something the average person runs and hides away from when the Avengers arrive on the scene there's a sense of relief from the people not of course for the city's infrastructure or future rebuilding efforts but for the overall safety of the inhabitants but what happens when a glowing circle encompassing an image of a black bat appears in a dark, gloomy sky? Well, in the new Batman, directed by Matt Reeves, we see this light in the midnight Gotham sky, and it represents something closer to villainy. It strikes fear in the hearts of those in Gotham, which is DC's own Sodom and Gomorrah, debatably worthy of destruction by fire uh, from heaven above. Vengeance is coming, and he knows all your sins. In fact, in this, it's not a big spoiler, but Batman is not called Batman. He's called Vengeance for the first half of this movie. Uh, then Blake sort of zooms out. He says, it's a common human instinct to think fear is the way to get what you want. Whether it be your children you're attempting to get to behave, a spouse you want to listen to you, or a workplace in need of higher productivity, we utilize fear by enacting punishment in the hopes it will produce change. But in the end, it often enhances the issue. 
And even if results are uh, presented, they are tainted by a lack of genuine desire, done out of sheer will not to be punished. This, of course, is not change, but rather behavior modification. Unfortunately, the bat symbol in the sky has the same effect that the church does for lots of people. Oof. For some who operate under the, under the criminal element, a.k.a. self-deemed sinners, they drive by the church and with, see that cross, they, they, they express a look of fear and disdain. It represents an accusatory finger from the heavens, threatening them with vengeance in the form of fire and brimstone for their wicked deeds, simply judgment. For those who don't view themselves in such a sinful light, the church can be a symbol that God will get those other people one day with his vengeance. Pattinson's version of a Batman has struck so much fear in Gotham that even those saved by him are frightened of him, which isn't too far off from those sitting in the pews sometimes. How many Christians find themselves loved by God and simultaneously under the oppressive eye of judgment, fearful to make the wrong move, think the wrong thought, miss a Bible study, be distracted in their prayers? It becomes a relationship with a captor, not a savior. Anyway, by the end of the film, this young Batman realizes the city doesn't need vengeance and fear. Fear has only created more problems and further driven the city into its demise. It's created worse villains and inspired others to inflict the same fear on others. Instead, the disturbed city of Gotham needs hope. Fear doesn't create change, it paralyzes. It makes people move out of necessity and desire for safety, willing to do anything if they can only feel safe for a night. But with hope, you have freedom to roam pep in your step, something or someone who pulls you out of paralysis and tells you to be free once again. Okay, so you haven't seen the movie, I, I, I imagine, but this dynamic of fear, one of the reasons the Batman mythos is so evergreen, why it continues to, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is that... Uh, there's something about the fear <laughs> will will vengeance to to take revenge on the take it life uh, justice into your own hands to to change the world uh, by sheer force of will. Um, I think it's a very tempting fantasy. Uh, this is a movie that takes that seriously as to the fallout that occurs when the whole city is ruled by fear. And I mean. We're, we're living in a time right now, I mean, the, since we've been last recorded, uh, there's, there's a terrible war going on in the Ukraine. And there are people who are living in this actual kind of fear. I, I mean, for, to me, that, th some, some of those images were flashing into my mind during this film, because to live under that kind of fear ultimately creates more of the same thing. It creates more fear. It, it, it I, I I don't see how the desire to strike back and to to uh, recompense and the, it just drives the train further and further. Anyway, what this movie captures in a moment is that, um, and he keeps saying it. The Batman keeps saying it's like, don't use the same tools that they're using to to defeat the villains. Even though he realizes that just because he's not killing them doesn't mean he's not still using fear to control other people. Anyway, fear, hope, the behavior modification, Batman, any thoughts? It made me think there are um, people who are still very scared of God um, mm -hmm. and, and, and need a word of love and uh, grace, compassion, mercy. Um, so this is it's a real thing. And I've, I've been there in my life before. I'm glad not to be there 
anymore in that in that kind of um, really just visceral way. I mean, of course, I still feel like I oftentimes have to be something and have to earn God's favor and blessing, even though I know that that's not the gospel. I think we all struggle with that to some degree or another. For but there sure. are those in our midst who just feel like um, God doesn't like us. <clears throat> and it's funny, yeah. also that also applies to people who don't believe in God. You know, it's, uh, it's still yeah. the emotional response can still be there. You know, you can still yes. run uh, not wanting to go anywhere near a church for uh, even if you say, I, what is it, uh, I don't believe in God, but I, I still hate him, you know? <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just haven't yet to meet anyone that was, that who was, actually doesn't believe in God. I don't that know. Was my, that I was just, my wife. That was Jamie when I first met her. You know, she'd been through some things in her family, and she's like, I'm pretty sure I don't believe in God, but if I do, he's a real jerk, and I want nothing to do with him at all. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's fair enough. And let let it be said, God does take responsibility for his broken world in his broken body. Yeah. He does not absolve himself of responsibility for the suffering and pain of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... I, for me, this strikes the chord, and I've talked about it on here before, but of just, you know, people wanting to get parishioners back after the pandemic and using this kind of fear mechanism, um, you know, of like, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm sure some people are saying some horrible things about God to try to get people back in church, but it's mostly just like, you know, if you want the church to be here, you have to come and that kind of stuff. And it's just like, you know, I always like think fear works once, yeah. you know, and then like it doesn't work anymore. I don't know. I mean, unless you have a lot of power. So unless like you've got a four year old, you know, that you're in charge of, then then fear can work multiple times. But then like when it stops working, boy, does it stop working, you know, so it's like um, yeah. I, I just um, but I I. RJ, I just love that story about the parishioner because, you know, in the previous segment when we were talking about forgetting and Dave, you quoted, you know, the thing of um, in scripture about God forgetting our sins. And I was like, like part of me just in that moment was like, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, there's part of me that like even when I read that in the Bible um, and especially if someone says it to me, I'm like, yeah, but God's totally got like a fanny pack with like a list he keeps. You know <laughs> what I mean? Right. That he like pulls out. He's like, I may have forgotten, but this fanny pack hadn't, sis, you know? And like, so, I mean, it. I yeah. think, yeah, we all live in this. And part of that, just to name sort of classic kind of mockingbird stuff that people either love or hate about us, part of that is the law and the gospel, right? Part of that is like, we live under the weight of the law and the law has been completed in Jesus Christ. And so we do live in this tension, frankly. Um, and yet, right. Like that's why we say the same things over and over again and find so much relief in them. Like the one thing that relieves the tension that helps us to step outside of it is, is the gospel of grace. Mm. So, you know, I think, um, there's some truth in it. I just, I don't know. I think be afraid of God, but I think when people are trying to make you afraid, like, no, I, I, I have to say the other thing I keep that keeps playing in my brain is that we are often when we're met with the fear of, of people, when people are being, people are making us afraid. We, we, it's always remarkable to me when people choose to, 
not react with violence, like not meet them with violence. And I keep thinking about the um, nuclear power plant and uh, the missile attacks from the Russians and how I couldn't quite understand what was happening, but it was like the people who were in control of the power plant, who the Ukrainians, uh, kept begging them over the speakers because the Russians were inside. I think you, the Ukrainians maybe had control outside, but kept begging them verbally to stop like hurting the power plant because it was going to hurt everyone. And I, I have to say as much as we've, you know, it's hard to watch the news and as much violence, reciprocal violence as, as there has been totally understandably, what I find so moving is when, you know, these Ukrainians just say like, we don't understand like what, you know, like what, what is, there's almost like a, like a peaceful, like, um, negotiation or like a, almost a, I, I hesitate to say turning of the other cheek, but it's something that feels very, I don't know if it feels Christian. I don't know, but feels, it's very moving to me where it's like, we don't understand, mm. you know? Mm. Um, well, that what we understand instinctually is Batman's tactics. I don't think we understand yeah. the, the hope. The, though there's there's a moment in this well, movie when he the, when the switch turns for him and, and then all of a sudden don't blow it don't blow all it. of a sudden he becomes a light <laughs> and he's he's carrying like a flare and Aww. leading people out of a out of a flooded situation and it's it's a completely different mo and you feel even though the the movie doesn't really get much lighter. Uh, you think hope has actually entered the picture and, 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 uh, the, the fear, cause fear does beget more fear. Like this is oh, for sure. totally true. And you know, one of the, the, the things that this reminded me of the movie, uh, was something that this past week, I, I don't really watch Bill Maher. I kind of can't stand the guy, but why he's so entertaining <laughs> and funny. Dave. There was a young woman, a young, uh, black scholar named Chloe Valdere, who, uh, Valdari, who was on there. And, um, she was featured in the Atlantic last year as sort of a, she's become a, a diversity, in, equity, and inclusion expert who training uh, people uh, doing classes that actually people don't hate. <laughs> and, and the Atlantic uh, highlighted her last year because she's got something, what she calls the theory of enchantment. And she works with Daryl Davis some, uh, RJ and Sarah, who you know. She, the, Connor Friedersdorf, who wrote this article, said the theory of enchantment uh, elicits unusual openness, trust, and engagement from ideologically diverse observers, including many critics of more conventional uh, DEI training approaches. And I'll say this. After graduating in 2015, Valerie reflected that although her academic field offered many frameworks for combating conflict, it seldom addressed a related but conceptually distinct task, teaching people how to love. Wasn't that a glaring deficiency? One of her heroes, Martin Luther King, repeatedly stated in the last decade of his life that the end goal of his activism, even beyond equal rights for all people, was the creation of a beloved community rooted in redemptive agape love. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opponents into friends, King said. It is this type of understanding goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. Valerie uh, decided she wanted to teach people to love like that. But how? Well, she would study what people already love in hopes of reverse engineering the process. 
The theory of enchantment eschews newly ascendant social justice concepts and academic literature in favor of philosophical texts, civil rights movement speeches, authors such as James Baldwin, and pop culture, including shoe commercials, scenes from films, and song lyrics. First, she focuses on people's relationship with themselves. A person cannot love another human being or treat another human being with dignity if they do not love themselves, she argued on Twitter in October, noting that Baldwin agreed. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other, and when they have achieved this, the Negro problem will no longer exist, for it will no longer be needed. Valdery believes that the same logic applies to people of all races, and she never segregates her students because, quote, we all deal with insecurities. When humans handle insecurity poorly, she says, it fuels self-contempt, and overcompensation for self-contempt fuels extremist ideologies, including racism. She aims to teach the skills to develop self-worth, urging reflection on challenges we all share, mortality, imperfection, vulnerability, parental baggage. By making peace with the most trying aspects of the human condition, she says, you will be able to develop a capacity for empathy. You will naturally want to create inclusive spaces because the lens through which you see the world will be driven by openness, not by fear or cynicism. She says this, once you understand that there's a whole lot of baggage and complexity behind the facades we project, you start to look for the depth of things, gain awareness of your own depth, and see the depth in others. We teach about Daryl Davis, the black musician who successfully convinced multiple people to leave the KKK. We teach something from a show called The Redemption Project, where Van Jones went to San Quentin to arrange conversations between victims and offenders. It has nothing to do with race. The individuals are of the same racial background, but it's a powerful example of redemption, where people dig deep within their hearts to forgive people who have wronged them on an existential level. That was a touchy, touchy territory, but I thought one of uh, some of her themes of wanting to... <laughs> I'm excited about this territory, David Zoll. I don't know what you're talking about. I think... Uh, yeah. This is basically what we do. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to. I mean, just low anthropology. I was like... Are we enchanting people? This is so interesting. This is just church. Yeah. This is what we do at church. We preach yeah. the gospel. I mean, people get it's very mockingbird. Maybe, uh, maybe they can actually forgive somebody else and, you know, maybe. It's cr yeah. And dealing with the personal, right? I mean, this is the yeah. thing that, like... The universal. This is the crisis of mainline Protestantism. Yes. Is that we skip the personal. Yeah. Yes. We skip it. It's too much trouble. <clears throat> we don't want to talk about personal sin. We don't want to make people feel bad about themselves. Only in avoiding making people feel bad about themselves, we make them feel really bad about themselves. Because <laughs> then we just talk about the communal all the time and everything that they're the community right is getting and wrong. And people just get angry and balkanized. Yeah, and it's just yeah. like we have to have this woman speak. For I, us. I actually, like, I actually tried. She's too expensive right now, but hopefully if we get some, maybe someone will listen. Maybe someone knows her. Uh, well, yeah. hopefully she'll get less popular. Yeah, and she'll then get we less popular. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. But, uh, no, it's not. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's just, it, it's, I, I, I mean, I love the Daryl Davis crossover that we have had Mr. Davis speak for us. Like, that's just incredible. I And I think it's so true. Like, until we deal with the personal, like, it reminds me of an article about, um, I read once about, like, empathy in children. Because, you know, like, it was such a big deal. Like, how do we make children more empathetic? How do we make children, you know, here's a book about empathy. here, Which is sort of like, here's a book about racism, you know. Um and the way that we make children more empathetic is that we 
remind them of times when people took care of us when we were in need. Mm. That's mm. literally the only way to build empathy. You know, it's not like we do this because we're good people. It's, memories. hey, remember when you lost your house in Harvey and people showed up with bedding and a home for you and toys. Remember that? You know, like, so it's, it's just this, oh, it's so fascinating. And I wonder if part of the reason we're so bad at starting with a personal from, from any ideology is because, um, we're just in such groupthink now, mm -hmm. you know, of like that, you know, I wear a mask because, you know, I'm a Democrat and because I care about people. And it's so much easier to attach ourselves to these like lists mm -hmm. as opposed to like opening up our hearts. It's just so much easier. And it's so much more destructive. I mean, she thinks that people basically get resentful when they're put into huge groups because she says as a as a basically as a as a black person she gets resentful of constantly being told she can do this and not that and, of that, course. and then and then so she but and she also gives the example of jay-z um realizing going into therapy and that that opening him up to the rest of the world and wanting to like do good in the world yeah and and oh. and it's I, I i was very i'm convinced i think a lot of racism i mean yes there's a lot of ignorance but i think a lot of it is contempt and a way to deal with the world by blaming or scapegoating other people and you feel better about yourself if you can uh you know dump on someone else a whole group you can you can reduce the world down to these things and uh and maybe it's naive but she thinks that love is the answer and love only flows from people who feel loved and not um not somehow uh, accused all the time. And so... Yeah, reconciliation only flows from people who have been reconciled to God. Acceptance only flows from those who have been accepted. It's an enormous you burden know. for her to take on, by the way, to have to edu oh. educate other people about this, especially. And can you imagine the feedback <laughs> this person gets? Like, I'm just like, oh my gosh. Um, but, you know, she says that, like, they've been hired by TikTok and WeWork and, like... It, yeah. It, because I think the, the, no, the, the, the secret that no one wants to admit is the that... The two a, most reputable companies. <laughs> well, a lot of... <laughs> In America, I'm talking about the mainstream. Mockingbird's trying yeah. to hire. We just don't have enough money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the we'll give her a write-off. It's it's commonly acknowledged that a lot of these uh, diversity, inclusion, equity uh, training sessions can become just you know they make people very they make angry. people they, people just yeah of, they don't work they have to tolerate them they're like oh I'll yeah. get through this I'll tune out and I, the, they don't want to admit but they, they don't not only don't learn anything it only makes them never want to do another one again and she was like well what if we did one that sort of focused on love and mm -hmm. and uh you know love is people's like that's a luxury you know that that's a way to enable things but she says like she 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 says that the greatest gift of the black community has been to uh you know nonviolent uh turning the other cheek uh type of witness christian witness in the world Absolutely. And she does yeah, she 100%. is a christian but she also i think is sort of uh, de-emphasizes that stuff. We just outed her. I'm sorry. She's a Christian. No, it's well, it's I love it's it. interesting I stuff. It. I I I I, I got to listen to more, and I think she it was a confounding for uh, Bill Maher a little bit. Um, I mean, oh gosh, isn't, I gotta... aren't most things that have anything to do with mercy and grace <laughs> and love confounding for? I mean, God bless Bill. Uh, well, the next piece is, is built on this tremendously, and it's one of the best things I've read in a while. It's a newsletter from Richard Beck. Richard Beck, who's a theologian on the West Coast, is called Stop Sneering and Get to Work. Uh, Sarah, I, I sometimes, I almost felt like you could have written this. Um, 
He says, uh, we have a void in our culture. Uh, actually, we don't have a culture, is to put it a different way. Where there should exist a shared vision of the good, we have an emptiness and nothing and nullity. We possess technology, but no shared vision of the future, the, uh, of the true, the beautiful, and the good. And this, uh, argued missiologist Leslie Newbegin, makes us a very strange tribe. This is what would strike the Martian anthropologies, uh, anthropologists. If Martians came and uh, saw us, what they would... Uh, if Martians visited the Earth, what would strike them most forcefully is here is a culture where no one agrees because goodness does not exist. Hmm. If you understand the culture of the modern world, then, uh, you'll immediately understand why topical preaching... Uh, and ideologues have a broad appeal. Their advice giving is inserting values into the void. Any pastor with a good missionary mind should be able to see that dynamic. And he talks about taking his students from Fuller University into go to uh, tour Homeboy Industries, which is, you know, Greg Boyle's thing in uh, mm -hmm. Los Angeles. And this guy, this sort of former gang member, just talks about he doesn't know anything about their churches, but he's like, you know who's my guy? It's Joel Osteen. I love that guy. Yeah. And, uh, and, and everyone agrees that like this guy would never be in one of their churches, but for some reason, Joel Osteen is able to talk to him. Uh, yeah. And then Beck goes on to say, anyone who's paid two seconds of attention to the modern world knows exactly why Osteen has such wide appeal. Rob Bell uh, got it exactly right. He observed that Osteen was parenting people who have never had any parenting, at least not any oh. good parenting. Many people have never experienced a stable family where they heard constant and unconditional messages, messages of positivity, praise, and encouragement. Most people never grew up hearing, you can do this, you got this, I believe in you. But you know who says that over and over? Do you know who believes in you? Joel Osteen believes in you. <laughs> And then he goes on to, to take this to take the same uh, approach to worship music, Christian contemporary music. He says, I can't tell you how many times I've heard seminary-educated pastors and seminary professors sneer at Christian praise music. The music is castigated for being overly individualistic, therapeutic, and sentimental. We too personal. We sneer and call it Jesus is my boyfriend music. You'll see the point if you listen to the lyrics of a song like Hillsong's Oceans, which has over 120 million YouTube views, or Lauren Daigle's You Say, over 242 million YouTube views. Lyrics like, you are mine and I am yours, in you I find my worth and in you I find my identity. But instead of sneering at the therapeutic individualism of these songs, their focus upon me and my feelings... Take a second to listen to these songs as a missionary, as a cultural anthropologist. Instead of LOL, 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 how about we think for a second? To what deep ache in the modern world are these songs appealing to? This isn't rocket science. The reason praise songs centering therapeutic themes of God's intimate care and love are so popular are simple. Their simp anxiety, depression, suicide, loneliness, and addiction are all skyrocketing. So the appeal of songs like Oceans or You Say or No Mystery, these songs are hitting us right where we are hurting. Their appeal is blindingly obvious to any decent missionary. What he's saying is that uh, in a seminary-educated Christian context, it's so easy to look down on uh, people who are giving overly personalized, what you consider to be too personal or irrelevant uh, messages. And yet the proof is kind of in the pudding this this we're only reaching other people who think those same critiques are true but the rest of the world is just sitting there hurting dying to be addressed personally 
uh, in their loneliness, their anxiety, before they can go out and and think about the world or correctly worship, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> worship right. with their God-centered piety. I mean, right. I understand right. it doesn't wash away all the critiques of these things, and some of the, these things are really overt, like the, Jesus is my boyfriend stuff, to the, to the point of discomfort. Um, but I what unless you're in a lot of pain, yeah. I mean, don't you think Unless so? Unless you're in a lot of pain. And then you hear it and you're like, I feel so seen and loved. I'm going to cry now, you know? And then you feel catharsis and then you, you feel do. better. You walk out like, I mean, better. like, I sometimes am struck in my own denomination and our denomination about how much people are like, traditional prayers and the Book of Common Prayer and traditional music and the hymns. And it's like, whose tradition? Whose tradition? White people from England? Is that... Okay, like that's a that is a stream of tradition, you know. Um, yeah, and I love the I love the old hymns. I mean, I am a college minister, and my students love the old hymns. Like that's what we sing every week, you know. Um, but there's also a ministry group on campus that do, that does more of the sort of you know, I don't I any I feel like any contemporary Christian music, mm-hmm. right? And, and there are students that love that and go there and that's a beautiful thing for them. Um, so I do, I don't know. It, it always feels like a, an interesting conversation of privilege. And I, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know how to say this carefully, so I won't, but I think like 95% of the things that you hear in seminaries are wrong. (laughs) And I think that seminary is nothing saying seminary is like parish ministry is like saying like gardening is like having a baby. Okay. (laughs) It's not the same thing at all. Right. If you use the same practices to grow carrots as you do for a colicky newborn, the baby's not going to make it, you know, like, and that is like, it's just the worst. I just feel like so much of the information people get and sort of these biases that we try to grow in clergy and young impressionable clergy around, you know, contemporary Christian music and how we're so much better than, you know, these people who just like pray extemporaneously or we're so much better than, than Joel or whatever. I mean, you know, Joel's church is full of immigrants, right? Like it's, I mean, honestly, like Joel Olstein's church is full of immigrants. Like, it's full of people who like are looking for a comforting word who are looking for, you know, positivity. And I will be honest with you. I really recoil at the idea of positivity in church. <laughs> well, what he's what they're not, saying is, I don't think it's positivity. It. What I think is yeah, what we're yeah, yeah. saying is that if you are frankly, from my background, which is a, a, a educated, privileged, you know, neurotic white guy, when I walk into, and when people like me walk into a Joel, or they hear Joel Osteen sermon, what they often hear is, "If you believe harder, try harder, yeah. do better, read your Bible yeah. more, then God will not only love you, God will bless you with all sorts yeah. of things." They hear an if-then law, 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 law. Now, yes. if you if you are coming from a different cultural context, and I think the proof is just simply in the pudding, there might be something we're not hearing which is if you've never thought that uh, anyone cared about you, if you've never thought you, you were capable anything of anything, anything or, you might, yeah. instead of hearing a no or an if then, you might go in there and hear, gosh, this guy seems to not only think that I'm worth speaking to, but might might think that God cares about me enough to God care cares. about my yeah. actual concerns, 
which a lot of times are financial because I'm totally, you know, living month to month and paycheck to paycheck. And so where we hear the law, other people might hear the gospel. That's not to say that there's something deeply objectively off-putting about some certain people and the capped white teeth and all that stuff. But I, I, I still think that we're getting something wrong here and what people are finding is they're being addressed where they actually are rather than where they think they should be. And there are some cultural differences that are not being acknowledged. And one of the great cultural differences is uh, the fact that is sort of borne out in our understanding of sort of collective versus individual. It's so it's so interesting. I, and yeah. I do think it's... There, there's a racial component to it, which is very uncomfortable for people. The people that are preaching yeah. the most about racism tend to be the ones what? who are making all of the uh, distinctions there, and they're not reaching the actual in seminary <laughs> classes that are all what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. sorry. Yeah. I, so I'm done I mean, for the, my soapbox. The box. thing, Dave, is like I hear what you're saying. I agree with all of it, and I don't like the way it makes me feel. You know, like, it's like, (coughs) (laughs) I mean, like, I've never thought about that before. And now I'm uncomfortable with all of the previous convictions I had about how much I didn't like Joel Osteen. (laughs) I mean, this isn't fun for me. RJ, (laughs) what do you think? Uh, My first thought is it it makes me thankful uh, for different denominations. Mm. You know, people are always like, they mourn like, oh, the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of the Gethsemane yes. that all his believers would be one. You know, why can't we just be one? It's like, well, maybe yeah. God actually knows what he's doing. And maybe um, there are different denominations preaching his message in different ways because he knows that different people need to hear things differently and to trust a little bit that, you know. I will say my, my general, this sounds weird to say, my general kind of faith is not the right word, but it, it's dawning on me that maybe church is actually the best way for people to hear about and experience Jesus, mm. which I probably wouldn't have said 10 or 20 years ago. You know, I think I've been skeptical of the church for like a long time and the church is broken and the church has injured people and there are people who have been wounded by the church. And at the same it's time, you. Um, yeah, uh, at the same time, God seems to work through the church, yeah. you know, um, writ large, right? The, 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 the universal church, all the denominations, the churches. Um, and I will say like, yeah, I'm not a big um, Joel fan, but I remember a buddy of mine in Houston being like, you know that um, Lakewood has 50 full-time paid therapists that any one of their congregants can go see at any time free of charge. And I was like, what? What? I did not know that. What? You know, and then when Hurricane Harvey hit, all these people from around the country were dumping on Lakewood for not opening their doors to to refugees. And I was like, you guys, in, no one can reach it. Like, it's literally impossible yeah. to get there because it's an island in the middle of a lake. Yeah. Like, and you know, and then, you know, they gave away millions and millions of dollars. So I, I'm conflicted. You know, I do think about prosperity gospels, and I think about that passage in the Bible where it says, uh, you know, there'll come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but will gather around them people who say what their itching ears want to mm-hmm. hear. And Paul's talking about the law, right? Mm-hmm. We want to hear the law, if mm-hmm. then, if then. But Dave, I think what you said about just because I hear something as the law doesn't mean that someone else does. I don't you know, like your, it. Your, your father <laughs> talks about um, preaching the enabling word, you know, mm-hmm. and that sometimes it, it's, um, it is a matter of pastoral sensitivity 
Um, and, you know, whatever Joel's doing, it seems to be working. You know, you do wish he would sort of talk about Jesus a little bit more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or the, something. The point here is not but, to exonerate but, you know, I, I don't the know. content it's, of what's being said. I think the, it, but, but there, something can be said and can be heard a different way. And something about oh my gosh, the, yeah. uh, and, and, or to any singular prosperity thing. I'm just being struck by. Yes, there is always, people always flock to the law, some sort of formula that if I do this, then I'll get that. But that's, I I think that we, what what Beck is trying to say is don't think, imagine, use some imagination. When I was, there's something when I was in Palm Beach uh, two weeks ago, I had a number of people, and these are people, it's actually quite a diverse church, even though it's very, uh, the zip code is, it's not, let's just say none of us are buying houses there anytime any soon. But it's, um, uh, it is a. Uh, I kept hearing people say to me because I was always fishing for compliments about RJ just to make sure they knew how special this guy is. And what I paid him extra. To what do I that. heard. Uh, what I kept hearing people say is, you know, I, it's so strange. I feel like he's speaking directly to me. Uh. I feel like he's talking just to me. And I thought to myself, um, and then then I also, had, uh, some of the people had, had come from another church where they just felt that they'd been grouped in with sort of the privileged and the, the folks that need to save the world. And, and that had not produced um, fidelity, shall we say, or loyalty or uh, uh, devotion. What it did produce is like, I just, just start stopped going because I don't want to just get lectured all the time. But then when they, yeah. they went and heard this this silly Dutch guy speak that he was he was speaking directly to and these people were tears with their eyes they said I've been in church my whole life and no one's ever actually talked to me about me mm. and I thought to myself this is this whole church as a community is growing as a collective in in leaps and bounds and there's so much energy for the community for other people and then I the same week I watched my my parents who go to a bunch of different churches but one of the churches they go to is a Pentecostal church and uh, these people who are constantly being taught about individual faith and God relating to them in this hyper individualistic way you might say they uh, they packed up and sent a million meals to the Ukraine for refugees a million in a week let me tell you what <laughs> My Episcopal Church did not do that, <laughs> and it's like it was—it was not going to be publicized. You know, we do other things, and we're trying to do our sure. best. But I thought a million? Are you are you kidding me? Uh, uh, these these individualists, you know, uh, consumerist, materialistic Christians are just uh, sitting there <laughs> sending a million meals to people they've never met across the ocean, and then bringing them. They actually went to Poland to bring them to the... It's crazy. I thought to myself, the pictures your dad put up, it's just crazy. I thought to myself, gosh, this is, something is, something's getting lost in translation here. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. But our traditional music is so much Yeah, better, I mean, we got know. these incredible hymns. That's so crazy to me. I, I love telling the story about how, like, Martin Luther, like, would go down to the bars being like, what are they singing in the bars? And then would go home and write sacred lyrics to it. So it's like, basically, like, imagine walking into church every week and, like, singing a, a Taylor Swift song that I've just whipped up a few, like, Jesus-y I lyrics to. I mean, that's to. what a like, lot of that's these That's the Reformation. Yes, I love that's the that. Reformation. That's you so know, good. it's like every one of your traditional hymns at some point, you know, somebody comes complained about it like what is this crazy it's 1880s yeah. music, you know like <laughs> well this yeah. is anyway, this somebody, is yeah. mockingbird so we're not going to end on a note of positivity um uh, sarah no, i'm gonna no, let you don't. have the final <gasps> word uh i'm gonna read to you from your your own piece from uh, the re- the oh. relief of lent uh that you published on mockingbird and you said this and by the way it's deeply 
it's positive in its ultimate uh, uh, mm. sentiment. Maybe, but don't sugarcoat. Uh, it. This is what she says. Amidst my to-do list and holiday existential angst, you're talking about various seasons here. The church yeah. often spends Advent telling me I need to be more present. By the time Christmas gets here, I feel as though I've been hit in the head with a wreath. <laughs> we may be singing Silent Night, but I'm off so exhausted that I'm hoping for a silent nap. <laughs> uh, Epiphany is the season when I worry about taking down holiday decorations and hoping to glimpse this elusive light everyone keeps mentioning. And aside from having the churchiest name ever, Ordinary Time, capital O, capital T, feels like your friend that needs medication for her anxiety but just keeps saying she's high strung. <laughs> Get some meds, girl. Ain't nothing ordinary about right now. <laughs> Stop talking about me, Sarah. Um, yeah, you're talking to RJ. Lent, however, is this big, beautiful purple ocean of sadness. The church takes us into her arms and says, oh, you grieve, I grieve too. It is in this season specifically that our nagging questions rise to the top. Will our regrets define the landscape of our lives? Can we possibly outrun our shame? Are we the only lonely ones in the room? Lent is the moment when we sit in the worn-down pews where generations of rear ends have rested, and we collectively ask, what will become of us? Then you shift gears a little bit. You say, nothing makes me sadder than a Lenten discipline that involves a diet. God does not want your carbohydrates or your sugar. God wants you. We are promised that God knows our weaknesses personally. Our fears about the world around us, our inability to be the kind of parent we long to be, our jealousies and our fury, the sadness of loss that refuses to let us go. How in the world could someone show up and love the worst of us? And why in the world would Jesus choose that lot for himself? And so, what does this mean for that other season in our beautifully antiquated church calendar? What does this mean for Easter? Do you have to practice a meaningful Lent in order for Easter to feel as glorious as we are promised it is? Given the last few years that humanity has suffered, the war our world is facing, and whatever weaknesses your soul personally suffers, I would ask you this. Do we even have a choice? Sarah, such a beautiful piece. Oh, thanks. Honestly, just such a relief to write. So I'm just thankful to be able to write. Like, because it's been, I feel like everything has been about mom and dad. And everything is sort of about mom and dad anyway. Mm -hmm. But like, this didn't feel, this felt like I could write about something else, you know, for the first time, which was like a huge, yeah, felt like a tell huge us more about what you, what inspired it. Um, well, honestly, I just love that, uh, Lent is a season for the sad people, you know, I don't know. I find a lot of comfort in that. And I, it's, I think I used to think that Lent and I think most people think Lent, right. Is the season where we have to give something up and we, ha you know, it's like, we have to be super penitential and, um, you know, we're not as I think it was one of the first early sort of liturgical pieces I wrote for, for Mockingbird, but, um, we're not, you know, Jesus in the desert, like, right. Having a dance off with Satan. Like that's not, I mean, we somehow frame <laughs> that as what Lent is in our brains that like, we are like, we're out there. Like we're not, that's not happening. Right. Like Jesus is doing that on our behalf. Like you giving up chocolate is not you like taking on the devil. Um, and so for me, Lent has just become this place uh, where I can, my sadness has a place to rest. And, you know, I think about what my friend Callie Pitcock said uh, last year, 
during Lent, and I've thought about it a lot this Lent. This like sort of like no matter how Lent sort of goes, um, Easter is always one day closer to us, right? Like no matter what we do, mm. like Easter is ever getting closer. And so there's a lot of like hopefulness to me there. Um, but yeah, I just, I just feel like Lent is for the sad ones, you know? And I love that. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I, I wonder if people hear that and think like, well, that's negative. I don't know because we're talking about positivity and negativity, but, uh, my life has never brought me as much joy as I have for it now. Um, and well, it's taken, I think negativity would be the, the injunction. Don't be sad. You're not allowed to feel sad. Yeah, Th- yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the negativity, like um, yeah, not, not yes. being acknowledged, b- being sort of yeah. forcibly ignored almost, or yeah, uh, yeah, accused would be to say yes. um, your sadness has no place. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, I just, I think, like, I have a tremendous amount of joy in my life, but also like recognizing the sadness is. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. So this book, this book, The Grieving Brain, which I'm obsessed with right now, one of the sort of reasons I bought this book is that the writer talks about how one of the reasons people can't leave their grief is because um, they, their brain, your brain literally has to rewire, right? And so there's this great experiment. You can totally cut this, Dave, but there's this great experiment I'm obsessed with, with a mouse and a blue Lego. And they put a mouse in one of those like scientific things and it goes around the blue Lego, right? Well, one day they take out the blue Lego and it's a mouse, the tiny brain, and the mouse still makes space for the blue Lego. The point being that like our grief, our, you know, has to like, things have to rewire in order for it to settle. And I just think that Lent is like this wonderful place where we can face absence Mm. and our brain can find a way to rewire through that. Yeah. I think everyone needs to go. I'm going to go rewatch Inside Out, you know, which is a hundred percent about you can't, you cannot find joy and peace if you do not create room for sadness. Yeah. And if you try to just shove sadness to the side, you'll just shut down. Yeah. You'll just completely shut down, right? You have to create space for the negativity and the morning to come out so that it can be healed and dealt with. We call call that a Gatorade movie in our family because you're so dehydrated from crying that you need Gatorade. (laughs) That's what I told those little kids, by the way, on Ash Wednesday, to be honest with you. I said sometimes uh, the best way to feel happy is to talk about the things that make you sad. Mm. Dave, that's so good. (laughs) Ash Wednesday is the time. And all the teachers freaked. Sadness, what? <laughs> Joy of the Lord. No, they're like, who let this guidance counselor in here? <laughs> Joel Osteen stat. Um, sorry, RJ, I cut you off though. What, what else would you say? No, no. Any other no, Lenten like, thoughts? I mean, you're you're doing well, this. Well, I just you know, there's one little one little passage of scripture that I've been thinking about all throughout, mm. um, especially a little earlier. But I just I, I love this, and we forget this sometimes. Um, it's from Second uh, Corinthians chapter one, where Paul says, um, "As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes, 
For in him, every one of God's promises is a yes. And I love that, that we, we, we have this conflicted relationship with ourselves and with God. And sometimes we feel this, we, we feel like he is a no and, and, and uh, you know, we're trying to figure it out. But just in, in Jesus Christ, all God's promises are yes. Um, and because of that, you know, we can just live in freedom and truth. We don't have to hide. We can bring what we are. Um, we also don't, I don't know, we, we can rejoice if there's someone else with whom we don't agree 100% who is making God's yes manifest to people that um, we're unable to do that for. You know, I think about good old Joel. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that passage. That's beautiful. R.J. Heyman, ladies and gentlemen. Sarah, great to be with you. Happy, happy yeah. Lent, I guess. Happy, have a good one. I just y'all. feel like my whole, oh my, my gosh. whole, my whole Blow life is up. Lent. I'll just be honest with you. Like, I, I, put on, yes, really... honey, put on some purple. Go sit in a pew and cry. <laughs> Remember that God doesn't have a fanny pack with your sins in it. Okay. And go watch the Batman. That's a Lenten movie if ever there was one. Good God. And then Inside Out. And then really watch Inside Out. Yeah. Um, well, the two of you, thank you so much. We'll talk to you in a couple yeah. weeks. Uh, sign up for the New York conference, everybody. Uh, we hope to see you there. And uh, we just thank you for listening, as always. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.